Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and we have episode 236 for September 6th, 2021 today. And we've got a new show for you today, and I've got a lot of stuff to cover, as usual. Uh, there wasn't a lot of maybe hot-burning issues in the news as there have been recently, like particularly that last one I did that was really long. Uh, but there's still a lot of stuff I want to cover today, and I think uh, some of these articles are going to highlight some important topics that I want to talk about. First of all, we got some really kind of bizarre and crazy security news. If you hadn't seen this one, some Microsoft problems, uh, both of the client side and the server side, the client side being uh, some security researcher figured out that <laughs> with by plugging in the right gaming mouse, he could basically completely take over somebody's computer. And it turns out it's not just that particular mouse, and it's not really the mouse's problem, it's Microsoft's problem. So we're going to talk about how that works. And then Microsoft has an Azure cloud database vulnerability that basically left all of their customers' data open, completely open for somebody to take. <laughs> Again, Microsoft's fault, and uh, they need to fix that. Then there was an article I ran into about, uh, you might recall years ago, there was a breach of Juniper, a networking company, and there's some new details have emerged from that that just, again, highlights this whole problem with governments wanting backdoors into our encrypted stuff. And Australia is now considering requiring people on social media to prove their identity in hopes that lack of anonymity will make things better, and it won't. Google has decided to lock down some Afghani government accounts. Because in Afghanistan, privacy problems could lead to your imminent death. Apple is expanding its Apple Wallet capability to include your digital ID, that is, your driver's license and things like that. And I've got an opinion piece there that talks about why you might not want to do that. Somebody has uncovered a pretty nasty Bluetooth flaw that affects, like, just about everything. Actually, one of my patrons on Patreon brought an article to my attention that talks about Apple's privacy stance and how that seems to not really apply to its own employees. But it's not all bad news this week. We've got some good stuff, too. I've got an update for you on the Apple child safety stuff that we talked about a couple weeks ago and the U.S. government coming down hard on a stalkerware company. So lots to talk about today. Let's get to the news. All right, first on the docket, there was a rather disturbing story about how this security researcher was able to take over someone's computer basically by plugging in the right kind of mouse. Now, in this case, it happens to be a Razer mouse, uh, and there was actually a Steel Series mouse that it turns out had the same problem, but the problem is not with these mice. The problem is with Microsoft Windows. So this is an article from Tom's Guide, and realize that there was actually a previous article to this, but it talks about both of them. So chronologically, it's going to feel a bit weird, but just hang with me, and the article will explain both of these cases as we go. A day after the world learned that Razer gaming mice could be used to take over Windows PCs, there's news that the same trick works with SteelSeries gaming keyboards, mice, headsets, and even mouse pads. As with the Razer mice, it's actually the Windows desktop application that causes the trouble. That's because it gets system-wide privileges during installation without first asking for a system administrator's permission. This flaw was discovered by security researcher Lawrence Amer, who was inspired by the Razer issue. A malicious human using, or malware that's already running on, a Windows 10 PC, and presumably this applies to Windows 11 too, 
as a low-level user, during the installation process can leverage this flaw to gain full system control. In cybersecurity terms, this is called privilege escalation or escalation elevation of privileges. It's when processes or users gain powers they shouldn't have. However, this flaw isn't the fault of SteelSeries or Razer. Those companies are just trying to get their software installed quickly. This is instead a Microsoft issue because Windows isn't distinguishing between hardware drivers, which normally don't need admin permissions to install, and peripheral-related desktop desktop software, which should need admin permission. Microsoft needs to fix this privilege escalation situation before more problems like this pop up, as they almost certainly will. So what can you do about this? To avoid having your PC pwned by gaming peripherals, make sure you lock the screen of your workplace PC when you step away from your desk. Home PCs are under less threat from this kind of attack due to there being fewer potential users around, but you might want to shut off your PC when you've got a lot of company over. To really make sure that this can't happen to your machine, log in as an administrator, go to System, then Settings, and then About, and click on the Advanced System Settings link. This will spawn a box labeled System Properties. Select the Hardware tab and then click the button Device Installation Settings. In the pop-up window that follows, titled Do You Want to Automatically Download Manufacturer's Apps and Custom Icons Available for Your Devices? Select the radio button labeled No, and in apparently next to No in parentheses it says, Your device might not work as expected. As you might imagine, taking this more severe route might make installing new hardware, not just gaming mice and keyboards, but also printers, headphones, and even USB security keys, a bit more arduous, although not impossible. And then there's a section on how the hack works. It explains this way. It says, Normally, installing a system-wide application requires admin permissions before the process can begin. That's what happens when you download SteelSeries or Razer Synapse desktop software from the company websites and try to install it. You're prompted with either a request for your OK, if you're already running Windows as an administrator, which, by the way, you shouldn't be, or a request for an administrator's password if you're a limited user, which you should always be. But in the case of these gaming peripherals or their wireless dongles, just plugging one of them into a Windows machine for the first time gets Windows looking online for the required driver software and the optional companion desktop app. The desktop software is downloaded and the installation process begins without any administrator permission needed. While the installation process is running, you can open links from the installer interface to open File Explorer windows. Then you can right-click those File Explorer windows to open a command line window, as you can do now in any Explorer window. But in this case, that command line window will be running with full system privileges and the power to install, delete, or alter any file or program on the entire PC. All an attacker needs to pull this off is the tiny USB dongle of a Razer or SteelSeries wireless mouse or keyboard. In fact, an Android-based tool has already been created that can fool PCs into thinking a Razer or SteelSeries device is plugged in. Someone armed with that tool can connect their phone to the USB port of any Windows machine in a workplace to gain full system privileges and a valuable foothold in the corporate network. It also wouldn't be that difficult to reprogram ordinary USB sticks so that a PC would think they are a Razer or a SteelSeries dongle. You could then drop them in the company parking lot with the expectation that some curious employee would plug one in. Again, what Microsoft needs to do is make Windows tell the difference between a necessary device driver and an optional application that accompanies the device. Right now, it treats them both the same way. Windows could also require admin permission before installing device drivers, which is probably what it should have been doing all along. All right, so, yeah, what what that, what that guy said. Basically, Windows, in trying to be helpful, when you plug in a new device that it doesn't recognize, tries to go out to the web and find any special software needed for that device to work. 
And normally what that would mean was going and finding an official device driver to install. And if that is done properly and securely, that's probably not a horrible thing for most people. Otherwise, it just becomes extremely inconvenient. But what it's also doing in this case is it's installing a companion application that goes along with that to probably configure your gaming mouse or your gaming keyboard to do special things or whatever. And that application that it's installing is also being installed with admin privileges without prompting the user to enter their admin password. And in this case, it's not that software that's a problem, though it certainly could be a problem. The problem is that during this installation process, a smart person or hacker can use this installation process to launch a file explorer window and from that window running with admin privileges, it can launch a command prompt and then do whatever it wants. So the upshot here, first of all, is that Microsoft needs to fix this. And so we can hope that there'll be a Microsoft patch soon. And as always, patch early, patch often. But the upshot here is that this requires physical access to the PC for the hack. Now, a lot of security experts will tell you that once you've got physical access to a PC, it's basically game over anyway. There are so many other ways you can hack a computer. So in that sense, it's, <laughs> you know, don't light your hair on fire over this one. But just realize that you need to take care of physical access to your PC. So if, you're a, if you've got a laptop and you're at a coffee shop, don't leave that laptop unattended. Bad guys with a USB device can hack that computer in literally seconds without actually even interacting with the computer. Often they just need to plug it in. The other thing that this article mentions is you really should not be operating as an administrator on your PC. You should have at least two accounts on every computer you own, an admin account and a non-admin account. And your non-admin account is the one you should be using on a daily basis. Now, how do you do that if you've already got it set up? You know, whenever you get your computer, by default, it has one account, and that account, by necessity, is an admin account. So what you really need to do is you need to create a second admin account, and then from that admin account, you need to go back and reduce the permissions on your regular everyday account to non-administrator status. And of course, if you really want to know how to do this, you can look it up on the web or you could buy my book, but that's the basic process. All right, next up, another Microsoft catastrophe waiting to happen. Uh, this is from an article from The Verge. Microsoft has warned thousands of its Azure cloud computing customers, including many Fortune 500 companies, about a vulnerability that left their data completely exposed for the last two years. A flaw in Microsoft Azure Cosmos DB database product left more than 3,300 Azure customers open to complete unrestricted access by attackers. The vulnerability was introduced in 2019 when Microsoft added a data visualization feature called Jupyter Notebook to Cosmos DB. The feature was turned on by default for all Cosmos DBs in February 2021. A listing of Azure Cosmos DB clients includes companies like Coca-Cola, Liberty Mutual Insurance, ExxonMobil, and Walgreens, to name just a few. And here's a quote from Ami Lutwak, uh, who's chief technology officer of Wiz, uh, the security company that discovered the issue. He says, quote, this is the worst cloud vulnerability you can imagine. This is the central database of Azure, and we were able to get access to any customer database that we wanted, unquote. Despite the severity and risk presented, Microsoft hasn't seen any evidence of the vulnerability leading to illicit data access. And this is a quote from Microsoft. They talked to Bloomberg. They said, quote, There is no evidence of this technique being exploited by malicious actors. We are not aware of any customer data being accessed because of this vulnerability, unquote. Microsoft paid Wiz $40,000 for the discovery, according to Reuters. That seems like a pretty small bounty, actually. In an update posted to the Microsoft Security Response Center, the company says its forensic investigation included looking through logs to find any current activity or similar events in the past. And another quote from Microsoft, they say, quote, Our investigation shows no unauthorized access other than the researcher activity, unquote. 
In a detailed blog post, Wiz says that the vulnerability introduced by Jupyter Notebook allowed the company's resources to gain access to the primary keys that secured the Cosmos DB databases for Microsoft customers. With said keys, Wiz had full read-write-delete access to the data of several thousand Microsoft Azure customers. Wiz says that it discovered the issue two weeks ago and Microsoft disabled the vulnerability within 48 hours of Wiz reporting it. However, Microsoft can't change its customers' primary access keys, which is why the company emailed Cosmos DB customers to manually change their keys in order to mitigate exposure. Okay, so what's, <laughs> what's the upshot for you? Not much, except that the only data that can't be stolen is data that doesn't exist. So... This is, again, just another reason why you need to minimize to the best of your ability any personal data out there. Unfortunately, in a lot of these cases, there's nothing you can do. The data out there is data that you've given to other companies, and it's up to them to control it. And in a lot of cases, you're required to give that data. Uh, Let's say it's your health insurance company or your employer or the U.S. government. Those are not things you can just easily opt out of. But in cases where you can... This is why you minimize the data that you give away. And there are other reasons as well, which we're going to get to later today. All right, next up. Many years ago, Juniper Network had a a massive data breach. And uh, it's been kind of shrouded in secrecy. But there's been some new details that have just emerged, which just gives us another opportunity to talk and think about this. So, So this is an article from Yahoo Finance, and it's actually a much, much longer article than what I'm about to read. So if you're really curious, you can go in and find some more details. Um, But I'm just going to kind of cover the top part of it so we can discuss what the implications are. Days before Christmas in 2015, Juniper Networks Incorporated alerted users that it had been breached. In a brief statement, the company said it had discovered unauthorized code in one of its network security protocols, allowing hackers to decipher encrypted communications that gain high-level access to customers' computer systems. Further details were scant, but Juniper made clear the implications were serious. It urged customers to download a software update, quote-unquote, with the highest priority. More than five years later, the breach of Juniper's network remains an enduring mystery in computer security, an attack on America's software supply chain that potentially exposed highly sensitive customers, including telecommunications companies and U.S. military agencies, to years of spying before the company issued a patch. Those intruders haven't yet been publicly identified, but if there were any victims other than Juniper, they haven't surfaced to date. One crucial detail about the incident has long been known, uncovered by independent researchers days after Juniper's alert in 2015, and continues to raise questions about the methods U.S. intelligence agencies use to monitor foreign adversaries. The Juniper product that was targeted, a popular firewall device called NetScreen, included an algorithm written by the National Security Agency, or the NSA. Security researchers have suggested that the algorithm contained an intentional flaw, otherwise known as a backdoor, that American spies could have used to eavesdrop on the communications of Juniper's overseas customers. Juniper's breach remains important and the subject of continued questions from Congress because it highlights the perils of governments inserting backdoors in technology products. And this is a quote from uh, Senator Ron Wyden. He says, quote, As government agencies and misguided politicians continue to push for backdoors into our personal devices, policymakers and the American people need a full understanding of how backdoors will be exploited by our adversaries. Unquote. Senator Wyden demanded answers in the last year from Juniper and the NSA about the incident in letters signed by 10 or more members of Congress. 
Against that backdrop, a Bloomberg News investigation has filled in significant new details, including why a Sunnyvale, California-based Juniper, a top maker of computer networking equipment, used the NSA algorithm in the first place and who was behind the attack. Juniper installed the NSA code, an algorithm with an unwieldy name, Dual Elliptic Curve Deterministic Random Bit Generator, in NetScreen devices beginning in 2008, even though the company's engineers knew there was a vulnerability that some experts considered a backdoor, according to a former senior U.S. intelligence official and three Juniper employees who were involved with or briefed about the decision. The reason was that the Department of Defense, a major customer and NSA's parent agency, insisted on its inclusion despite the availability of other, more trusted alternatives, according to the official and the three employees. The algorithm had just become a federal standard at NSA's behest, alongside three similar ones that weren't mired in controversy, and the Pentagon tied some future contracts for Juniper specifically to the use of dual elliptic curve, the employees said. The request prompted concern among some Juniper engineers, but ultimately the code was added to appease a large customer, the employee said. Bloomberg's findings adds new details to a long-running and contentious debate over the use of backdoors, secret digital pathways that bypass security measures and allow high-level access to computer networks. Some of the government's prior efforts to install backdoors in U.S. products are well-known, including an ill-fated effort to equip American-designed telecommunications equipment with the NSA's Clipper chip in the early 1990s. Two decades later, leaked documents from former NSA contractor Edward Snowden revealed some of the agency's secret techniques for penetrating encryption, lending credence to allegations that NSA installed a backdoor in the dual elliptic curve algorithm, according to multiple news articles based on the files. And this is a quote from uh, Jennifer Stisa Granick, uh, who's a Surveillance and Cybersecurity Counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union, or the ACLU. She says, quote, Juniper's case is a perfect example of the danger of government backdoors. There is no such thing as a backdoor that only the U.S. government can exploit, unquote. So, yeah, so, you know, basically more details are emerging about what happened there. Uh, it's, I think it's been understood or at least rumored for a long time now that this one particular elliptic curve algorithm, it's actually, it's not the algorithm. I think it's, this algorithm has multiple parameters. And I think there was a particular curve that the NSA uh, had recommended for use that apparently it knew was weak. So basically it was pushing Juniper and others, I think by virtue of the fact that it was recommended in some government security documents that they use this known flawed version of elliptic curve cryptography, apparently so that they could exploit it in the wild. And uh, this article goes on and talks about this, but basically it was shown to be exploited by China in other cases. So when you weaken it for one, you weaken it for all. And you can't count on obscurity for security. These backdoors will be found. Their existence will be leaked. And they will be used against us. So the only thing you can do is make everything as secure as possible for everyone. All right, next up, a story about Australia. And like the U.S. and several other, and the U.K. and several other countries trying to deal with, you know, the evils of social media and cyberbullying and cyberstalking and admittedly bad things that go on are trying to come up with solutions for this, and they're not thinking them through. This is an article from InfoSecurity magazine. Australia is mulling the introduction of a compulsory points-based ID verification system for users of social media and online dating sites. 
Under the new proposal, individuals would be required to prove who they are by submitting 100 points of ID before they are allowed to use a service. And I'm just going to stop here. I, this 100 points, I think, is doesn't mean 100 different types of ID. I think it means you need ID worth up to 100 points, which I'm sure like things like a passport would be very high point value. Things like your library card would probably be a very low value. I'm just guessing. I don't think the article explains that, but I think that's what they mean. Permissible forms of identification could include a driver's license, Medicare card, birth certificate, or passport. The solution was devised on the premise that removing users' anonymity would decrease instances of online abuse, trolling, and cyberbullying. Currently, Australians are not required to provide ID to use most online platforms. However, some ask users to verify their identity by supplying a phone number and or an email address. The ID rule was one of 88 recommendations made in a recent federal parliamentary committee report proposing a range of strategies to decrease family, domestic, and sexual violence. And this is a quote from that report. It says, quote, In order to open or maintain an existing social media account, customers should be required by law to identify themselves to a platform using 100 points of identification, in the same way as a person must provide identification for a mobile phone account or to buy a mobile SIM card. Social media platforms must provide those identifying details when requested by the e-safety commissioner, law enforcement, or as directed by a court, unquote. A quote-unquote substantial increase in criminal penalties and fines for technology-facilitated abuse was also called for in the report as a way to deter netizens from quote-unquote errant behavior. Swinburne University senior lecturer in digital media, Dr. Belinda Barnett, was skeptical about the effectiveness and wisdom of placing large quantities of sensitive personal data in the care of social media companies and online dating websites. And this is a quote from uh, Ms. Barnett. She says, quote, it's a long bow to draw that if we give our passport to Facebook, then suddenly people will not be abusive. There's no research to support that assumption. We'd be giving over these identity documents to proprietary platforms that do not have our best interests at heart, unquote. So anyway, this isn't law yet. This is just a recommendation, but it's a, it's a patently bad idea. I'm not saying these are not problems. I'm not saying that we don't need to find some solutions. I, I don't know that getting rid of anonymity is going to really help. And it's certainly going to have a lot of really negative unintended consequences. Identity on the web is a really, really tricky thing. And I think that we need to explore some much more nuanced ideas about what this means. For example, I, I, I think we need a notion of multiple identities. I guess roles maybe is another way that people talk about that. And when I interact with people over the net, I have various hats that I wear. Sometimes I'm Carrie the person. Sometimes I'm Carrie the podcaster. Sometimes I'm Carrie the person who owns Wawasee Media. And sometimes I'm just a rando and I want to be a rando. I want to be anonymous. So I think we could have ways where we have a little bit of both, right? We could have like Twitter has verified accounts and most, but most accounts are unverified. Maybe you could do things like, well, I only want people who are verified to be able to follow me or to be able to reply or comment on my stuff. There are other issues with this that, uh, that are really thorny. And <laughs> I, I would really want to get somebody from the EFF or ACLU or uh, one of those organizations on to walk me through it all. But it's not as simple as just saying, well, if we get rid of anonymity, all the bad things will go away on the internet. That is certainly not the case. And it will have a lot of other really negative impacts to privacy and security. Okay. All right. Let's speaking of which <laughs> that brings me to this next article from business insider. 
and I'll just start reading. It says, Google locked some email accounts belonging to the Afghanistan government following the Taliban takeover, a source told Reuters. The report comes as concerns grow over how the Taliban might seek retribution towards those who had worked with the U.S. government. The group has promised to grant amnesty to all, but reports from the ground appear to undermine those assurances. In a statement to Reuters, Google did not explicitly confirm that they locked certain accounts, but said that they were, quote, taking temporary actions to secure relevant accounts, unquote, as they monitor the situation in Afghanistan. The source who told Reuters about the locked accounts was a formal government employee. He said the Taliban told him last month to save the data on his agency's servers. And this is a quote from that source who said, quote, if I do so, then they will get access to the data and official communications of the previous ministry leadership, unquote. And he added that he did not do what was asked and is now in hiding. The Intercept reported last month that the Taliban had seized biometrics devices belonging to the U.S. military that could be used to identify Afghans who worked with the U.S. And I'll talk about that in a second. During the takeover, the Taliban obtained thousands of the Afghan government's secret files and payroll lists, which could implicate Afghans who worked to counter the Taliban in the country. Officials told the New York Times that despite the Taliban's assurances, there were reports of detentions and disappearances as well as executions. One former Afghan official told the outlet that he was in hiding when the Taliban showed up at his house in the middle of the night. Other reports have said that the Taliban is going door-to-door seeking out people with ties to the West. All right, so this mentioned another thing I wanted, actually another article I was going to read, but I'll just talk about it instead of that. And that is these biometric devices. The U.S., in its infinite wisdom, had created this biometric scanning device. I think it was a, uh, an iris scanner that, I, I don't know, it maybe it used to identify people that were working with the government, but then had this database of people's irises that worked with the U.S. government. And the devices that they use, these eye scanners, that presumably were attached to the database of all the, these people were left behind, meaning that the Taliban is now using these exact same devices to find out who worked with the U.S. government. So again, the theme here. <laughs> we got to stop collecting all this data, especially really personal data, if we really don't absolutely positively need it. And if we do collect it, we absolutely positively must secure that data, limit its access, encrypt it, like crazy, and delete it as soon as we do not need it anymore. If there exists a database of people that worked with the U.S. on this biometric stuff, I hope that it was deleted before we left. And it should have been engineered to be easy to delete. In other words, not copied into multiple places and not used by uh, other databases and pulled into other information systems. We're just doing this poorly. We need privacy by design. This has got to be thought out up front and built in. All right, so again, kind of continuing on this theme, this is an article from The Next Web, and it's it's an opinion piece, and it's, it's very opinionated. <laughs> so uh, let me just read this one to you. Apple today announced that eight U.S. states will soon allow citizens to host their official digital state identifications and driver's licenses in their Apple wallets. And if, by the way, if you're not familiar with Apple Wallet, it's... Basically what it sounds like, it's a digital wallet. It's something you have on your phone uh, that you can access through your Apple Watch and other devices where you can store credit cards for easy, you know, payments and things like that. But what else do you keep in your wallet? Well, you keep an ID in your wallet. So that's where they're going with this. This is going to be incredibly convenient and it'll speed up numerous services. And it really freaking sucks for democracy and personal privacy. Here's why in a nutshell. 
It's giving law enforcement a clear and defensible point from which to compel you to unlock your phone. One that will sound good to juries and give prosecutors who like to pretend the Fifth Amendment doesn't exist a leg to stand on. So at this point in the article, the the author has these little, like, cutout sections where it's someone else talking. So this is kind of a hypothetical situation from a law enforcement officer who has pulled somebody over and it says, Sir, I just need to see your driver's license. I need you to unlock your phone and pull your documents up and then hand it to me so that I can take it to scan it back in my cruiser. And then back to the regular article says, The Apple announcement is very clear to point out use cases where users will not have to hand their devices over to anyone. Per the press release, and this is a quote from Apple's press release, driver's licenses and state IDs in wallet are only presented digitally through encrypted communication directly between the device and the identity reader. So users do not need to unlock, show, or hand over their device. And that's the end of the quote from the press release. This sounds good on paper. It's not, and that should be obvious. But I can practically feel the rage of a billion Apple users building to a fever pitch, and I'd like to preempt a few questions. And again, this is kind of where he gets hypothetical. And this first one says, can't you read? It says right there, you don't have to hand your phone over to anyone. Police officers in the U.S. used unauthorized trials of Palantir and Clearview AI software to conduct digital stop and frisks, spend hundreds of millions of dollars each year in payouts to the victims of police misconduct, carry qualified immunity from civil and criminal lawsuits, and have been caught numerous times attempting to illegally coerce citizens into unlocking and handing over their phones. If you trust every police officer in the U.S., you have nothing to worry about. And here's his next little hypothetical retort. It says, so you just use your physical ID for the police and your Apple wallet ID for other stuff. If you go around using your digital ID in stores and on camera and your physical one with the police, law enforcement will be able to argue that they need to see your phone to verify the digital ID you used in stores against the one you're carrying. There are a million ways cops can coerce a person to unlock their phones and hand them over. The problem with storing your ID on them, as mentioned before, is that it gives them a reason that may sound very legitimate when a jury hears it but ultimately should fail the same Fifth Amendment test that previous attempts to force U.S. citizens and the Apple Corporation into unlocking phones did. It's very convenient for you to whip out your phone, press it against a scanner, and have a TSA agent in the airport wave you through. It's very inconvenient when a police officer uses that convenience to coerce a scared citizen into unlocking and handing over their device. The more people who choose the convenience, despite the danger, the more normalized the concept will be. And that's when services and utilities will begin popping up that reward citizens for using digital IDs over physical ones. This is called stratification, and it's already a huge problem in U.S. government services. All right, his next and final uh, hypothetical retort is, you don't have to use it. Apple's just giving those of us who want the option. That's not a good thing. Just like we needed net neutrality to ensure that telecom companies don't create fast lanes to the internet for their products and slow lanes for their competitors, it's crucial to the future of democracy that we don't allow the government and big tech to create fast lanes, especially when they're specifically engineered for people who are privileged enough to both own an iPhone and not give a crap, he didn't say crap, about the implications of carrying their IDs in the same place as all the data they generate. Simply put, It would be a statistical anomaly of universe-altering proportions if the U.S. police don't use this to compel iPhone users to unlock and hand over their devices. If you're okay with that, this feature was definitely designed to appeal to you. Okay, so, obviously, (laughs) very opinionated, but I agree with all of these things. This is how we lose democracy and privacy. 
We normalize things that seem simple for purposes that seem valid and slide down slippery slopes until we've lost everything. There, Look, there may be some sort of a technical compromise here I, that fixes this. I don't know. But this will lead to my tip of the week, and we'll get to that later. But we've really got to be careful when we start trading off convenience and security and privacy. All right, next up, another security story, and this is from Tom's Guide. And it's about a brand new Bluetooth vulnerability that's going to affect basically everybody. Again, here we go. Researchers have found Bluetooth security flaws affecting at least 1,400 different models of commercial products ranging from laptops, smartphones, and IoT devices to commercial aircraft and heavy trucks. The number of affected devices may run into the tens of millions. Unfortunately, some vendors, including Qualcomm and Texas Instruments, don't plan to fix all the flaws. So says the team from the Singapore University of Technology and Design and Singapore's Agency for Science, Technology, and Research, who call their collective discoveries Bracktooth and I've put up a website explaining it all. We're not going to delve into the technical details, but suffice it to say that there are at least 16 different flaws affecting at least 13 different systems on a chip, or SOCs, or chipsets made by at least 11 different manufacturers, among them Intel, Cypress Infineon, Harman International, Expressive, Silicon Labs, and the aforementioned Qualcomm and Texas Instruments. The flaws could cause software crashes and communication freezes and could, in some cases, permit arbitrary code execution, i.e. hacking. The exact methods of attack will not be publicly disclosed until October 31st to give vendors more time to deploy patches, but manufacturers can ask the researchers for private disclosure in order to test their devices. And this is a note from the paper. It says, quote, all the vulnerabilities can be triggered without any previous pairing or authentication, unquote. The flaws affect classic Bluetooth, i.e. Bluetooth versions 1 through 3. They do not affect Bluetooth Low Energy, also called Bluetooth 4.0 through 5.2, which is fundamentally different. However, almost all Bluetooth Low Energy compatible devices are compatible with earlier forms of Bluetooth, rendering the devices vulnerable. And again, quoting from the paper, it says, As the Bluetooth stack is often shared across many products, it's highly probable that many other products beyond the 1,400 entries observed in the Bluetooth listing are affected by Bracktooth, unquote. Three companies have already released patches for the flaws, including Expressive and Cypress Infineon, said the researchers. Intel and Qualcomm are developing patches, while other vendors are investigating the research findings. Unfortunately, since few of these companies make end-user products, in most cases, device makers will have to incorporate the patches into their own firmware updates and then pass them on to consumers. Not all vendors appear to be cooperating. The researchers said that Harman International and Security Labs, quote, hardly communicated with the team and the status of their investigation is unclear at best, unquote. Meanwhile, Texas Instruments, quote, had successfully replicated the security issue, but will consider producing a patch only if demanded by customers, unquote. Qualcomm is fixing one flaw, as noted above, but the situation is more complicated with another flaw. It's already been fixed on the most recent version of one chipset, but Qualcomm, quote, has no plan, unquote, to fix it on older versions, and the flaw can't be fixed on another chipset due to insufficient memory space. So, <laughs> what can you do? Honestly, nothing. This is out of your hands, uh, except be on the lookout for software updates for your devices, including all those IoT devices. In most cases, it sounds like all this really does is kind of jam up your device. But in at least one of these cases, it allowed for device takeover. All right, let's move on. 
Uh, this next article was actually brought to my attention by one of my patrons, thank you very much, uh, in our Discord server. So again, if you want to be in on the discussion, look me up on Patreon and become a subscriber. You can join us on Discord. So anyway, he dropped this article into Patreon. I've got a little channel in there called Newswire where my patrons can suggest articles for me to talk about, many of which I usually find myself, but this one I think uh, I hadn't seen yet. So this is from The Verge, and it's titled, Apple Cares About Privacy Unless You Work at Apple. Jacob Preston was sitting down with his manager during his first week at Apple when he was told, with little fanfare, that he needed to link his personal Apple ID and work account. The request struck him as odd. Like anyone who owns an Apple product, Preston's Apple ID was intimately tied to his personal data. It connected his devices to the company's various services, including his iCloud backups. How could he be sure his personal messages and documents wouldn't land on his work laptop? Still, he was too giddy about his new job as a firmware engineer to care. He went ahead and linked the accounts. Three years later, when Preston handed in his resignation, the choice came back to haunt him. His manager told him to return his work laptop and, per Apple protocol, said he shouldn't wipe the computer's hard drive. His initial worry had come to pass. His personal messages were on his work laptop, as were private documents concerning his taxes and a recent home loan. Preston pushed back, saying some of the files contained highly personal information, and there was no reasonable way to make sure they were all removed from the laptop without wiping it completely. He was told the policy wasn't negotiable. Preston's story is part of a growing tension inside Apple, where some employees say that the company isn't doing enough to protect their personal privacy, and at times actively seeks to invade it for security reasons. Employees have been asked to install software builds on their phones to test out new features prior to launch, only to find that the builds expose their personal messages. Others have found that when testing new Apple products like Apple's Face ID, images are recorded every time they open their phones. And this is a quote from Ashley Gyovic, uh, who's a senior engineering program manager, I assume, at Apple. She said, If they did this to a customer, people would lose their goddamn minds, unquote. Apple employees also can't use their work email addresses to sign up for iCloud accounts, so many use their personal accounts. The blurring of personal and work accounts has resulted in some unusual situations, including Govic allegedly being forced to hand compromising photos of herself to Apple lawyers when her team became involved in an unrelated legal dispute. Underpinning all of this is a stringent employment agreement that gives Apple the right to conduct extensive employee surveillance, including, quote, physical, video, or electronic surveillance, unquote, as well as the ability to, quote, search your workspace, such as file cabinets, desks, and offices, even if locked, review phone records, or search any non-Apple property, such as backpacks and purses, on company premises, unquote. Apple also tells employees that they should have, quote, no expectation of privacy when using your or someone else's personal devices for Apple business, when using Apple systems or networks, or when on Apple's premises, unquote. Many employees have a choice between getting an Apple-owned phone or having the company pay for their phone plan, but one source tells The Verge that trying to maintain two phones can become impractical. In software engineering, certain employees are expected to participate in a, quote, live-on program that puts out daily builds with bug fixes. And the source said, quote, you can't have a successful live-on program without people treating these devices exactly the same as a personal phone. So a work device or work account just won't cut it, unquote. None of these policies are unique. Tech companies almost always have rules in place to search employees' corporate devices, including personal devices used for work. It's also common practice for tech companies to ask employees to test new software, which would potentially expose personal information. But Apple sets itself apart from other tech giants through its commitment to consumer privacy. 
As Tim Cook said at the Computers Privacy and Data Protection Conference in January 2021, businesses built on buying and selling user data without the knowledge or consent of consumers, quote, degrade our fundamental right to privacy first and our social fabric by consequence, unquote. The lack of employee privacy has made the perceived hypocrisy particularly irksome to some workers. So the article goes on, but you get the idea. And uh, I mean, uh, the, the the legal fact of the matter is that when you work for someone, you do lose all expectation of privacy when you're using their laptops, their computers, any phone that they give you, any accounts that they give you, any software that you install, and probably anything you do on company premises. Apple is known for its secrecy. It tries to hide future products with a zeal that is almost unmatched. They often fail, but they still try really hard. And because of this stance on product marketing, basically, they have these really draconian security and privacy or anti-privacy stipulations and regulations and things that I'm sure that you sign as an employee as a contract, meaning it's legally binding and makes your work entirely dependent on following them. Now, I've worked at several big tech companies, and it's, it, it's very common to quote-unquote eat your own dog food, uh, which is to say to test it on yourself first. And for many of these products, especially the Apple products, these are things you would use on a daily basis. You know, email, messages, uh, all these various apps, notes, reminders, iCloud. And what are you going to put in those things? If you're going to use it normally, you're going to put your personal stuff in there. So the only way we're going to fix this is with regulation. Uh, there's just uh, there's just no other way around it. We're going to need some somebody to step in and draw some sort of a clear line where your rights begin and end when working for a company. And I think they're going to need to rein in some of these practices because it's it's just gotten out of hand. And it's not going to be easy. I understand where Apple's coming from. So from a purely, you know, corporate and business standpoint, I know what they're trying to do. But like in this case it turned out that <laughs> This worker had, I believe, if, if you read the article further, I think she had nude photos of herself on her phone, which, hey, you can argue was, given what I just said, was probably not a good thing to do. But in practical terms, it's really hard to avoid in some cases. I mean, okay, you can not take nude photos of yourself, but I mean, not intermingling your personal stuff with work stuff. It's really hard to do. And so I don't have the answers, but, but we obviously need to figure something out here because the way we're currently doing things is not working. And to the point of this article, Apple has put a lot of stake in its privacy claims. And it said a lot of really good things about privacy. But you got to, you know, not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. And I think that does imply to their employees. I think that they need to show that same spirit, that same understanding of the need for privacy for their employees as well. Perhaps that's even a higher standard they should meet just to bleed by example. All right. Well, I said it wasn't all bad news this week, and <laughs> let's get to some good news. First of all, I'll just read a very short clip here from Apple Insider, and it's about the child safety features, in particular the CSAM, or Child Sexual Abuse Material Scanner, that Apple was set to release with iOS 15, like literally in a couple of weeks, um, that would basically turn your phone into a surveillance device. And let me just read briefly from this, and I'll talk about it. It says... Following widespread criticism, Apple has announced that it will not be launching its child protection features as planned and will instead take additional time to consult. In an email to Apple Insider and other publications, Apple says that it has taken the decision to postpone its feature following the reaction to its original announcement. And from the statement, it says, quote, 
Last month, we announced plans for features intended to help protect children from predators who use communication tools to recruit and exploit them and limit the spread of child sexual abuse material, or CSAM. Based on feedback from customers, advocacy groups, researchers, and others, we have decided to take additional time over the coming months to collect input and make improvements before releasing these critically important child safety features, unquote. There are no further details either of how the company may consult to collect input nor with whom it will be working. All right, but the important thing here is they have delayed it. This is honestly kind of what I was hoping they were doing. This is sort of a face-saving way for Apple to not do this ever. <laughs> uh, you know, basically said, okay, we're going to pump the brakes on this. We're going to study it some more, and they could study it forever and just never do it. We'll see what happens. That's They've done things like this in the past where, you know, they announced something they thought was super cool. Uh, they got some, you know, initial blowback, and then they tried to defend it, and they got a lot more blowback, and then eventually said, okay, we'll think about it, and then kind of sit on it and it just kind of just kind of goes away and you never hear about it again. So at the very least, you know, I applaud Apple for listening to that feedback. And what this does mean, and I'd sent out a link in the last uh, show when I talked about this, is that your voice matters. That feedback, that blowback, that pushback from the public and from these organizations made a difference. So when these things come up, it's really important if you feel strongly that you do something about it. And there's a lot of ways you can do it. Uh, in this case, there was a petition you could sign, you know, talk to your government representatives, particularly the ones that directly represent, represent you. Post to social media about these things. Send letters to the company themselves. Your voice does matter. And it also makes other people aware of what's going on. This, these kind of things will start hitting the news and it raises awareness. So again, it's important that we understand the significance of what these things are, what some of the unintended consequences from these actions might be, and that we speak up and make our voices heard. And so our final story is from the EFF, and it's about uh, the Federal Trade Commission here in the U.S., the FTC, who just banned a stalkerware company, basically from conducting their business, which is fantastic. Let me just read a portion of this article from the EFF. In a major victory in our campaign to stop stalkerware, the Federal Trade Commission, or the FTC, today banned the Android app company Support King and its CEO, Scott Zuckerman, developers of SpyPhone, from their surveillance business. The stalkerware app secretly, quote, harvested and shared data on people's physical movements, phone use, and online activities through a hidden device hack, unquote, according to the FTC. The app sold real-time access to surveillance, allowing stalkers and domestic abusers to track potential targets of their violence. EFF applauds this decision by the FTC and the message it sends to those who facilitate by technical means the behavior of stalkers and domestic abusers. For too long, this nascent industry has been allowed to thrive as an underbelly to the much larger and diverse app ecosystem. With the FTC now turning its focus to this industry, victims of stalkerware can begin to find solace in the fact that regulators are beginning to take their concerns seriously. The FTC case against Support King is the first to outright ban a stalkerware company and comes two years after EFF and its director of cybersecurity, Eva Galperin, who we have had on the show before, launched the Coalition Against Stalkerware to unite and mobilize security software companies and advocates for domestic abuse victims in actions to combat and shut down malicious stalkerware apps. Stalkerware, a type of commercially available surveillance software, is installed on phones without device users' knowledge or consent to secretly spy on them. The apps track victims' locations and allow abusers to read their text messages, monitor phone calls, see photos, videos, and web browsing, and much more. 
It's being used all over the world to intimidate, harass, and harm victims as a favorite tool for stalkers and abusive spouses or ex-partners. By using security vulnerabilities that may not yet be known to the public, known as zero-day exploits, Stalkerware developers subvert the normal security mechanisms built into the mobile operating system and are able to deeply embed their malicious code into the device. In a proposed settlement, the FTC bans Support King and Zuckerman from, quote, offering, promoting, selling, or advertising any surveillance app, service, or business, and to delete any information illegally collected from their Stalkerware apps, unquote. The ban sets an important precedent for developers who would consider developing apps that spy on and invade the privacy of their victims. The proposal will be subject to public comment for 30 days after publication in the Federal Register, after which the FTC will decide whether to make the proposal final. So, I, I don't know what the chances are that after public comment it will be taken down. It sounds like this would be a cut and dry case, but it's a really great victory in the case against Dockerware. This stuff, I, I don't know how honestly it was ever legal in the first place. But anyway, there is some good news out there this week. Now, before we wrap up the news, uh, there's one more article that I'm not even going to bother quoting because it's really long, but I'm going to suggest you read it anyway. It's from The Guardian, and it's titled, Panic Made Us Vulnerable, How 9-11 Made the U.S. Surveillance State and the Americans Who Fought Back. The 20th anniversary of 9-11 is coming up, uh, and it will come before the next podcast comes out. And um, this is probably all I'm going to say about that, but I think it's important. We've had 20 years now since that attack to reflect on not only the attack, and I'm not going to address that here. Obviously, it was a horrible thing, and terrorism is bad, and we want to stop it. I get all of that. But we overreacted. We were driven by fear and panic, and it drove us to voluntarily in some cases, and secretly in other cases, give up and or lose a lot of our basic civil liberties and give up privacy. And honestly, I believe that it's hurt our security overall. So anyway, as 9-11 comes up, obviously we want to remember the victims and their and the families and all the folks that were touched by that horrific incident. But I want to plant another thought in your head. I want to plant one more seed. And that is, we don't want to live in fear. We don't want to make our decisions based on fear. And honestly, even more to the point, we need to choose not to live in fear. We can't control what happens, but we can control how we react to what happens. If you're constantly living in fear, that is just a horrible state to be in. We can choose not to be afraid. We can choose to keep calm and carry on. We can choose freedom and, and the basic human right to privacy over surveillance. And these choices these choices have severe consequences. And I think we made a lot of the wrong choices right immediately after 9-11, some of which were hidden from us. Uh, and this article talks about those things. And so, you know, for that reason alone, I would recommend you read it. And let's, let's plot a better future. And let's, let's base those decisions. Let's, let's plot our future based on hope and not fear. On privacy, not surveillance. On love and not hate. Okay, so enough philosophizing. Let's get to the tip of the week. And I've got a bit of a twofer here for you. Uh, first of all, since we talked about the AT&T and T-Mobile massive, massive data breaches, it's this is important for everyone, honestly, with a mobile phone. Our mobile phones have become crucial in our overall privacy and security. And because so many two-factor authentications uh, and things go through your phone and so much private data exists on your phone, it's 
just crucial that we protect our not only our phones, but our accounts related to our phones. And SIM swapping and SIM jacking is a thing. It happens. And this is where bad guys with enough information, it's, it's a form of identity theft, can convince a mobile carrier that they are you and that, hey, I lost my phone. I need a new phone or give me a new SIM card. And once they have that SIM card, they can plug it into a phone and that phone becomes your phone. It can make and place calls like you. It can send and receive text messages as as you, as if it was you. It's a it's it's not a good thing, and there's really unfortunately not really good security around this. And what you need to do is kind of plant your flag. You need to go to your cell phone carrier and make sure, if you haven't already, that you have set an account pin or a passcode. They they have different names for it. But basically what that should do is prevent any major changes being done to your account or any SIM cards issued on your behalf without knowing that PIN. And think about it. I mean, after this T-Mobile and AT&T data breach, they have all the data they need to, if they were to call someone at AT&T or T-Mobile, they have all the information that they would know about you. They would sound pretty darn convincing. But what they hopefully do not have is the PIN code. Now, social engineering being what it is, those people, those support staff can, I'm sure, in most cases, unfortunately, still make changes to your account, can still issue SIM cards on your behalf if you don't have that PIN code, if you convince them otherwise. There's not much you can do about that. But you can at least have that PIN in place and hopefully count on your carrier not doing those things without you being able to produce that PIN code. So anyway, if step one, if you have not done this already, regardless of whether or not you're AT&T or T-Mobile or any other thing around the world, make sure you've got some sort of pin code or passcode in place on your account that would prevent changes. It's sort of like a credit freeze, honestly, for your, for your cell phone. Make sure you have that in place. All right. So, uh, face ID and touch ID are very convenient. They're easy ways to unlock your phone, but I'm sure after what we've talked about today, you can think of scenarios where you might not want your phone to be unlockable by your face or your finger because somebody might compel you to do that. So what can you do? turns out uh, that there are ways to hard lock your phone, which is a way of disabling temporarily biometric unlocking mechanisms. That means you must have a pin code set, which you should always have set for your phone. Always. You should always lock your phone. You should always have a pin code. Uh, And Face ID and Touch ID are just convenient ways to bypass that most of the time. But in a certain scenario where maybe you're getting pulled over and you feel it's unwarranted, maybe you're going through a security checkpoint at a border, or who who knows what, maybe you're, you're thinking you might get mugged. There are many reasons why you might want to be more cautious than usual and why you might not want your biometrics to be able to open your phone. Both iPhones and Androids have this capability where you can temporarily disable this, requiring the pin code. uh, And at that point, uh, Face ID and Touch ID will work again. So here's what you do on an iPhone. There are two basic kind of iPhones in existence today. There's the ones with the, still have the button that still have the Touch ID option. And then the ones without the button that are now have Face ID. So if you're using Face ID, what you want to do is you want to press and hold the side button, the power button, and either one of the opposite buttons, the volume buttons on the other side, press and hold one of the volume buttons and the power button on the other side, press and hold those. If you do that for two seconds, you'll get a screen that has a thing that says slide to power off. And there's also one there for medical ID, which by the way, I recommend that you fill out your medical information for that purpose. And an emergency SOS, the period on the screen. Now you don't have to do anything at that point. At this point, your phone will only unlock with the passcode. You can just 
you know, go back to normal, leave, leave it alone. It'll go back to a blank screen. But next time you go to open your phone, it's going to require a pin code. Now for a touch ID phone, you want to press and hold the power button. And then same, the same screen will come up and you'll get in the same state. Now for an Android phone, it's a little different. You want to go to, I'm not an Android user, so I'm reading this from, from another article I got uh, that tells you how to do this. So uh, I'm taking this for what it says, but it says, and I think this is on Android P or Android Pi and later, which most modern phones should have. Uh, if you go to security and location and your settings and you tap on uh, lock screen preferences uh, under device security, there's a toggle button there for show lockdown option. So make sure that, that is turned on. Now, if you don't see this option, it might be because you chose a swipe screen lock instead of a pattern or a pin or a password. Uh, so you might need to change that first. But now, once you've got this toggled on to actually get into this hard lock or lockdown mode, you press and hold the power button until the power menu comes up. And then just tap the enter lockdown or lockdown button. And then the next time you try to unlock your phone, it's going to require the pin or the password or whatever. Now, as long as we're talking about this, there's one other interesting mode that iPhones have, but I don't know if Android has this or not. But if you're really in an emergency, like you know you're in deep trouble like right now, maybe you're just in a car accident or you think you're getting mugged or whatever, if you actually tap your power button five times quickly, your phone in three seconds should sound an alarm and initiate an emergency SOS call uh, for emergency services. I have not tried this for obvious reasons, but that's a great feature. And... Uh, something you should know about and something you should just commit to memory because it's one of those things like when you really need it, you, you don't want to be thinking about how to do it. All right. So hopefully you can see after some of the articles I read today, why it would be important to have that little item in your personal toolbox and you should just commit it to memory. You should like know that one backwards and forwards and be able to do it at a moment's notice. And there you have it. There's your news and your tip of the week. <laughs> All right, there you have it. There's the news of the week, and uh, plenty to talk about as usual. I just have one quick request before we go. I actually requested for my publisher several copies of my book to be used for formal, professional book reviews. And as I was kind of cleaning some stuff on the basement, I realized I still had most of those copies. So I have a program for people to professionally review my book, and I would love to get some people. And when I say professionally, all I really mean is you've got some sort of an audience. So you've got a you know a decent blog or a social media following, or maybe you actually really do review books for people for, for a living, or maybe you just have a group. Um, like for instance, I'd love to talk to somebody from AARP about my book. Uh, I think that audience would really appreciate that my book in particular, because it's, you know, it's meant for non-techies and it's got all sorts of, you know, step-by-step -step stuff in it. So anyway, I'm trying to reach some of those people. And to do that, I'd like to find some people to review my book. So if you think you might qualify for that, or if you know somebody you think might qualify for that, go to my website, uh, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. And if you go to the book tab, off to the right-hand side there, there's a link where you can click to submit a form, and it'll just ask you some basic questions. But, you know, if you qualify, I will send you a free copy of the book for your review, with the obvious understanding that that would then lead to a review that you would post somewhere. So anyway, I just ran across those books and realized I really need to get those out to people to review. So again, I would love to find some people to review the book, find that link on my website and submit the form. All right. Next week, we got a really fun and interesting review with Andrea Miko from Privacy for Cars. And if you don't worry about privacy in your car, you're definitely going to want to listen to this one because after that interview, you definitely will. Our cars today are computers on wheels and most of them made today are talking to the internet all the time, whether you bought that service from them or not. So. Definitely want to catch that interview next week. 
All right, that'll do it, everyone. Take care. You know the drill. Get the shots. Help people get their shots. Wear the masks so we can hopefully get past this COVID thing and get back to normal. Oh, I want to travel again and just not have to wear a mask everywhere I go and just not have to worry about this stuff. It's within our power to do this, guys. We, we can do this. We just have to commit to it. All right. Take care, everybody. Until next week, as always, don't get caught with your garbage down. <laughs>